Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street surges to record territory as the Federal Reserve suggests it's going to start cutting rates over the coming three years. The $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act is reality. The Pentagon warns Congress that the U.S. Air Force's ground-based strategic deterrent uh, system by Northrop Grumman is running over budget. Boeing and Raytheon get new top leadership. Britain, Italy, and Japan sign a treaty to develop the global combat aircraft, and the U.S. Air Force picks its collaborative combat aircraft competitors. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are our team, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, welcome back to the show. It wouldn't be Sunday uh, without you, Ron. Uh, start us off with your uh, take on markets and what uh, this great news from the Fed means, right? I mean, we 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 had the Dow hit an all-time high, uh, and folks are encouraged that there are not only not going to be rate increases, but actually some rate cuts, right? A, a couple each year in 24, 25, and into 26, uh, as the Fed looks uh, to uh, soften uh, the landing. What, is, what does this all look like? What's the sentiment, and what does it mean uh, for the group, and how did they perform last week? Yeah, so the, the market was clearly encouraged by uh, Chairman Powell's uh, remarks, uh, I think that was on Thursday, uh, when he made those remarks, and suggested that we could see maybe three rate cuts next year. Um, so what do we see after that? So are we moving into an easing environment? That's what the, how the market interpreted it. Uh, we saw the 10-year yield come down uh, pretty markedly, right? So the 10-year yield uh, this week uh, was uh, 3.9%. Uh, if you go back not that long ago, uh, the middle of October, it was at 5%. So it's a humongous decline in, in the 10-year yield. And you saw the market just starting adjusting to that. So the things that are seen as more economically sensitive were doing better, you know, shorter-term cyclicals, that kind of stuff. Um, and that was, uh, again, kind of reflected in the performance of our group. The best performer of my coverage this week was Boeing. It was up almost 8%. Um, Spirit Aerosystems was up two and a half percent. To put that in perspective, the S and P was up two and a half percent. Then, if you look at uh, some of the uh, the more defense oriented names, uh, good bellwether, Lockheed Martin, it was down a percent and a half, so that was underperforming the S and P. Northrop Grumman was down three percent. General Dynamics was flat. Um, yeah, the one that kind of broke that rule was L three Harris. It was up about six and a half percent, but that one was on the heels of an investor meeting and uh, and uh, some discussion around um, new board members and activist investor, all, all kinds of stuff. So there was a lot of, a lot of noise there. Um, look at oil prices, what we tend to do. Uh, oil keeps trending down. WTI is at 71 now, and Brent is 76. That's maybe five bucks less than uh, where we were just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, and the VIX index has been you know, hovering around 12. Again, that's that sort of measurement of fear and loathing in the market. Um, and really the biggest risk here, I'm not a strategist or anything, uh, but in, in my humble opinion, is everybody's buying into, yeah, we're going to have a soft landing. It's going to be great. That's the consensus. That may very well happen, right? Sometimes the consensus is right. You know, you're in a burning building. You do want to get out of it. That would be the consensus view. Um, but many times the consensus is wrong. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, the, you know, the economic chips seem to be falling in place that there does seem to be a reasonable probability that um, you know, we'll have we'll have a soft landing, and and that's how the market is positioning itself. 
And why were the classic defense names off uh, compared to uh, some of the other companies? Is it, is it a sense that, you know, sort of commercial aerospace is going to charge back stronger, for example? No, not not so much that, but maybe it'll be stronger for longer. So just, just think about it. If the cost to finance everything is less, that's broadly better for everything, particularly those things that are more sensitive to economic activity. Uh, defense isn't really, right? I mean, defense has its right. own world of what's driving it. So, so that being said, if you want to position yourself to have more exposure to those things that are more economically sensitive, you have to get the capital from somewhere, right? So if you're not putting fresh capital to work, you're going to rotate money out of something that's maybe less economically sensitive to something that's more economically sensitive. That being said, however, it is interesting. If you look at the sensitivity of defense stocks to interest rates, they're not all that sensitive to it broadly. So right. my, my, my read on this is it's just a rotation from if you were parked in some defense names because of economic uncertainty, you might be more comfortable now uh, as a portfolio manager to shift some money out of those more defensive names right. into something more economically sensitive, you know, you know, something like a Boeing or, or something not even in our world. You know, you know, something that's just kind of what they call shorter cycle, more economically sensitive. And uh, right. I mean, this is going to benefit everybody because money becomes more uh, accessible. Right. I mean, but the question is what that uh, what impact that also all has on uh, pricing uh, as as we've seen. Um, but, and, and let me let me add one thing, not to be Debbie Downer, but 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 go ahead. But I will, because <laughs> that's one of my great skills. Um, as you look into next year. And if the Fed is saying they're going to cut, one of the reasons may be, maybe, because they see a harder economic time than the rest of us see. And that's why they're signaling this. So so we'll see. I'm not saying that's going to happen. And, and But but the risk here, and I've been doing this long enough, more often than not, the consensus tends to be wrong. Um, everybody's buying into a soft landing. And I hope that happens because that would be awesome for everybody involved, including myself. But that is the consensus view. And that's that's probably the risk to it. Listen, you wouldn't be a top rated analyst if you weren't telling your investors, hey, here are the things you should worry, worry about, as opposed to saying nothing. Everything is awesome and nothing, uh, nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> and then the piano comes out of nowhere and hits you and people go, Ron, what about the piano? Um, speaking about the piano, um, the is very bad analogy, Sash. Anyway, uh, walk us through how the group performed uh, in Europe, because obviously economic news that starts here has a tendency of ending up across the Atlantic, uh, just like stuff that happens across the Atlantic can also uh, affect us here. What's uh, what's what's your sense uh, on, um, you know, the dynamics in the United States, what it means for Europe and then how the group performed for its own reasons uh, on European markets? Look, I think the, um, I mean, the US uh, market and the, the interest rate, I mean, the big focus in Europe is which uh, European central banks are going to follow, uh, you know, follow the Fed and when. And it looks like, the, you know, the UK, which, which didn't change rates this week, is going to be probably several quarters at least behind, given fairly persistent uh, inflation concerns. Um, did this have, this didn't have much of an effect, it has to be said, on the European aerospace and defence sector. I mean, they... You know, the sector overall was up a, up a tiny amount uh, this week. Defence was up uh, just under a percent and civil stocks traded off very slightly. But I mean, it, you know, it was barely measurable. I mean, so you know, if you look at the, the two big outperformers this week, um, both defence stocks, Leonardo, which I think is partly, and we're going to talk about this in a second, the signing of the agreement on the Global Combat Air Programme, but also a joint venture uh, on, on armoured vehicles or tanks with uh, KNDS and then Saab. And I mean, Saab is a relatively liquid stock and therefore tends to 
uh, tend, tends to jump around a bit. I can't I can't trace a, a particular story which just which has got Saab going in terms of the um, uh, the civil stocks. You know they were they were off a little bit, but having been very very strong recently. So you know Safran was off two and a half percent, Airbus off uh, a percent and a half, and that's slightly odd given that. Airbus had some very, very large civil aircraft orders this week, including a 220 aircraft order from from Turkish. But it just goes to show, I think, that the market's already uh, was already anticipating that. Um, Richard, uh, I want to bring you uh, in on this, and we're going to talk about uh, global uh, combat air program uh, and a whole bunch of uh, other stuff uh, in a moment. But want to start off with the National Defense Authorization Act. We didn't discuss it on last week's show as it was being considered, but now it's going to be a reality. 886 uh, billion. Uh, dollars over the course of the week. Uh, the Pentagon also co- uh, communicated that the GBSD program, one of the most important programs uh, and, and integral to the U.S. nuclear modernization, we are recapitalizing all three legs of the triad, ICBMs, submarines, as well as our uh, freefall nuclear weapons uh, at this point. Um, and Secretary Kendall, who's recused from the program, uh, has also explained that this is actually the most complicated, you know, it's it's a, it's one of the most complicated programs that the United States has ever executed, as much of a land program, as a technology program, as an industrial and construction program. I'm going to put that aside for a minute. What were some of the most important things in this NDAA? What What is it that you liked and what is it that you didn't like? Because there is an awful lot of money in this and a lot of investment in some of the key capabilities the United States needs uh, and its allies need for the future. And Ron, I'm going to go to you uh, next. It's uh, obviously a, a $884 billion, It's pretty good, <laughs> you know, 3% raise. And it also uh, managed to go forward by, you know, basically separating that $105 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel, keeping that to a, a completely separate debate, which is probably for the best. You know, one of the most interesting aspects, and I think uh, positive aspects of NDAA this year, is that you know, you've got a lot of... Um, language supporting multi-year contracting authority to improve the industrial base, most notably with materials. People have been saying this for years, you know, we face a major challenge uh, in materials. In this case, they, they, there's this particular emphasis on rare earth elements. And one way around that is we need to have this sort of, you know, we will buy X amount at X price for X number of years, thereby promoting investment in a domestic materials industry. Uh, in this case, again, rare earth, but I, I think we might find ourselves putting more of this kind of contracting language into, say, titanium milk product and things like that. So uh, basically extending the logic of MYP to support broader industrial base concerns, I, I think that's certainly important. Um, in general, I, I don't think there were any huge surprises in this Um it, it looks like, you know, it, it looks relatively non-controversial again, because that $105 billion aid package is completely separate. Uh, the GBSD news, you know, a bit of a surprise because, of course, Northrop Grumman is uh, generally known for, for good execution rather than this issue, this uh, this possibly triggered tr- triggering a, you know, non-mercurity breach announcement. You know, as somebody once said, there's a framed picture of the, the wet noodle first used for punishing non-McCurdy breach uh, violators. Um, in other words, it doesn't really have to mean anything, uh, you know. But on the other hand, it's something you have to watch, especially since this is the sort of very big investment uh, that could be conceivably deferred as, as a sort of a short-term bill payer for other programs, possibly even including the B-21 in the event, uh, you know, the budget begins to, to flatline a bit. 
So I, I think it's something they, they certainly want to watch, uh, but there is broad support for recapitalizing all three legs of the nuclear triad. Um, I, I think you could also look at this, uh, and again, I mean, hearkening back to Secretary Kendall's words, right? Um, this is a real estate project. It's a construction project. And we have seen in the last couple of years, all of that stuff get more expensive, right? So if you're looking and, and recalculating some of these cost terms, which I think was a $96 billion uh, price tag for it, uh, at least this increment, then you know that that also uh, could be part of the, the the dynamics, obviously, that are shaping this. Uh, sure, Ron, and uh, if oh, I may, you know, Sorry. one one you know key related aspect of this that guarantees a higher level of political support as a giant real estate project is it sort of taps directly into our heavily gerrymandered political system. You know, you have a lot of states, you know, North Dakota, hello, whatever else, where there aren't a lot of other defense priorities. You know, it's not like they have giant aircraft factories in North Dakota. But you do have two senators and uh, a congressman or two, whatever they have, uh, who are very eager to support something with a significant economic impact from the defense budget on, in their state. Um, I, I don't begrudge them that, right? They've got land. We need the land. We need to build missile bases. It, it, tends, it, 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 it all tends to work out. But I do, I do appreciate what, it, what, what you're saying. Uh, Ron, let me uh, come back to you on uh, sort of your analysis uh, on where uh, we've ended up, what you like, what you maybe don't like, what do investors like, what do investors not like? Or are investors just looking at this and saying $886 billion is a lot of money, and we're about to ask for another $105 billion or so, dollars, including like 65 or something billion for Ukraine. So what's not to like? From a top-line perspective, investors, of course, are going to like you know the $886 billion. And then if you throw on top of that another 105, that's like big, big numbers, right? Uh, and you know the, the, the street tends to not define so much between you know, what's baseline spending versus what's supplemental spending, like the budget wonks tend to really get, you know, focused on what's baseline. And I guess that kind of goes back to where the, how the money is getting funded. I don't think the street really cares how the money is getting funded as long as the money is there. Um, but, but the most important piece probably is this, you need this to fall into place. You have to get military pay approved, right? And this was a, what, 5.3% increase in military pay. Uh, and you get, get military construction done before you can get to the appropriations bill, right? So this is one of the pieces that has to fall into place. So from from that perspective, it's key. From a you know from a top line perspective, it's key. And then everything that you know Richard said is I think on mark in terms of the investment in the industrial base, trying to identify areas where the industrial base is weak, so on and so forth. Um, and and you know if we ever want to get to the two point three per year Virginia class, that's going to take investment. That's going to take multi year procurement. It's going to take all kinds of things. And uh, from a policy perspective, this seems to be pushing things in that direction. Uh, and on aircraft numbers and everything else, I mean, is there anything that uh, surprised you, right? I mean, every year we track where we are on F-35 build rates and everything else. I mean, is there anything that sort of jumped out at you that that you thought was? Um... No, not, you know, no, 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 not not really. I mean, on F-35, I guess we're more focused on Lockheed's ability to get you know aircraft out the door. What's going on with Tech Refresh 3? You know, there's been some talk about like a tech refresh two and a half or something like that to get some airplanes right. delivered. Um, so, I mean, there, there, there isn't a huge focus there. And then uh, on the GBSD Sentinel program, I, I don't think anybody's surprised if there's cost overruns. And to Richard's right. comment, um, if you do, you know, get a, you know, are the, the winner of an unrecurdy breach, if you can frame it that way, it, yeah, it's really the wet noodle. I mean, how many times did F-35 breach, um, get an, uh, an unrecurdy breach. I think two, three times. Yeah, program's still here, still right. big, still going along, right? So uh, from that perspective, um, I don't 
think it really matters. And to your point, it's a really complex program, right? Because it's it's a construction, it's engineering and construction and you know missiles and this and that. There's a lot going on underneath right. the umbrella right. of this thing. Um, and um, what did L3 have to say on their uh, investor day on this? Right, because you know L3 Harris is um, you know critical in the tech refresh three, right? I mean, some of the work that they're doing, uh, right? I mean, there are, are a lot of authors for this delay, but they're one of uh, the the companies that's involved in it, obviously in an important fashion. What did, what did the company have to say and what were some kind of clear takeaways uh, there uh, more broadly? Yeah, interestingly enough, I mean, tech refresh three specifically didn't come up and there, because there was so much other stuff going on uh, with the the change of, oh, you know, by the way, there's an active investor who is adding two additional board seats and having a, you know, a overall review of operations in the company and kind of what that all means. So there's a lot of distractions going on. That being said, probably some of the biggest takeaways from the meeting are, are one, this comment was not mentioned by management. Uh, we want to be a six prime. That was sort of something they said many, many, many times in the past. They did not say it this time. Um, they seem comfortable being a supplier, uh, being a merchant supplier, and sometimes being a prime. Uh, the focus is not M&A, but integrating kind of what they have and really, truly just kind of focusing on uh, operational execution improvement. And that was, that was really the biggest takeaway from uh, uh, from the meeting. And that is a clear shift in, in strategy, right, where um, many years ago, many years ago, kind of before the merger uh, of L3 and Harris, management at the time was saying, hey, you know, we're going to integrate all this disparate L3 stuff. Right. Apparently that never happened. And so now they're going to start doing that again. I hope they do. There's probably upside there, uh, at least from an execution point of view, if they indeed do that. Uh, it is uh, fascinating to watch the course of a company that has, you know, access to a lot of different technologies across a lot of different places. And again, it does make that integration challenge uh, a challenge. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Sash, we were talking about combat aircraft programs. And thank you for your uh, patience as we discuss the mechanics of the uh, NDAA that rules our lives, although not as much as uh, appropriations uh, does. Walk us through Britain, Italy, Japan signed a treaty to develop the Global Combat Aircraft uh, or Global Combat Air Program. Uh, walk us through the details. And uh, as widely expected, Sweden isn't in the picture. Uh, walk us through why they are and still remain kind of the odd man out in this equation. And who else is going to be a part of it ultimately? Yeah, okay. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll deal with the last question first. I mean, I think the the you know the Swedish government, Swedish Ministry of Defence, decided that they had really to focus on bringing Grip and E into uh, service, and then working out what to do with the remainder of the Grip and fleet. I do they upgrade the uh, remaining Grip and CDs to E variants and so forth, and that they had no need at this stage to. Uh, to be a member of uh, what was then Tempest and is now GCAP. Personally, I think there's the risk that they missed the boat and that um, Swedish involvement will be much less in the next generation programme. From the point of view, though, of uh, Lockheed Martin, that's pretty good because that means that Sweden might well be an F-35 customer. But, you know, the Swedish government just took the view that the, the time was not right and that that's their decision. Um, Japan, uh, UK and Italy, uh, not so. They've um, There's been a lot of momentum on GCAP this year. This is the third major announcement and significance. 
it's a treaty. Treaties are important because you can't wriggle out of them very easily. In fact, you really can't wriggle out of them. So that means that, I mean, I'll take this from a very parochial UK uh, standpoint. Uh, GCAP is now fixed into the UK budget because of the treaty obligations. So it's going to be much harder for the Ministry of Defence or the RAF to say, well, actually, we'd like some more F-35s or we'd like something else or we'd, you know, we'd like to delay the programme for five years because you've got two very important treaty partners saying, no, this is the, this is the agreed timetable. Um, so uh, this makes GCAP just look much, much more solid uh, than uh, it otherwise would do. There's some really, really nice politics in this whole thing. Um, one of the concerns uh, in particular of Italy over the last um, six, nine months or so, certainly since the Japanese uh, came in formally, has been that GCAT might be dominated by the British and the Japanese and Italy might be a sort of rather junior partner. Um, now, I might slightly take the view that provided everybody uh, contributes roughly the same amount of money and buys the same, broadly the same number of aircraft, that shouldn't be an issue. But um, uh, it was very something that's been very much uh, um, in the Italian media. Um, what I think has been very attractive has been the degree to which the uh, whole GCAP um, issues of who runs it, where's it run, where the joint programme office is based out of, and so forth, has been shared around very, very evenly indeed. So the programme director, first programme director will be Japanese, the, the engineering director, which is a really important job, will be Italian, um, headquarters will be in the UK, but the programme office um, will, you know, will move between the three uh, countries. It's really hard for, you know, for anybody to say they've been uh, sort of hard done by. And comparisons are invidious, but compare that with the Franco-German SCAF programme, where DASO has, for technical reasons, just insisted on retaining leadership, period. Um, this looks to be a much more even uh, distribution of uh, responsibilities. And I think that means that the partners are more likely to stay in it because they perceive to, you know, in themselves to have, uh, you know, very, very attractive uh, industrial and, and um, political uh, takeoff from this. I'm really very impressed by that. Is the underlying message here that 78 is going to be the highest number the UK gets in terms of an F-35 fleet? I'd be astonished if we get that high. And what are the implications of that for the UK carrier program in particular, which which now what is forty eight airplanes are now what's on going to have to find going to have to find something something else to fly off the carriers. Uh, it's as simple as that. Either other people's F F thirty five Bs or as we were talking about the other week, um, uh, UAVs and UCAVs. Um, but uh, I you know I think F thirty five just starts being edged out of the budget at this stage, uh, and you know that's partly because it's fairly expensive aircraft, partly because the industrial um, implications of GCAP are way more attractive uh, than F-35 uh, at this stage. So, you know, that that's the way it's, it's cutting at the moment. And does this also mean that um, the program office could consider reducing the UK contribution to the program? Other people, when they've lost their role or reduced their buys, have seen their contributions to the program change, right? I mean, for example, if the Japanese end up buying more Bravos, um, you know, could Japan's role in this actually increase? over time and Britain's decrease. I'm sure that the UK companies involved um, and the UK government think that they have a, um, uh, you know, a, an assured work share based on the fact that we contributed to this a couple of decades back and were the first major partner in. 
Um, but you know, if the if the if the work share gets changed or so forth, well, that 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 tells you know that will tell people on GCAP everything they wanted to know. What's happening on GCAP also tells the F thirty five program all they need to know, right? That you were in it for one fifty, for example, you've ended up at forty eight or fifty airplanes or what have you, uh, right? I mean, it takes two to tango. So I'm just sort of curious as whether uh, you know, I'm not making it all a case against uh, GCAP. I'm just saying, you know, again, if you're trying to do all of this on a fixed budget um, and that's what's going to give, there could be implications to that give, right? Which, you know, obviously folks in London are smart enough to have made that calculation as they as they move ahead with this. Um, and also what it means for the Italians, right? Because the Italians were supposed to have a bigger chunk of these airplanes. So presumably the Italians are also not going to end up where they were going to end up on the F-35 program uh, ultimately. So it's, it's uh, certainly going to be you know, in- interesting, interesting to watch. I would just observe that all three uh, nations in GCAP are F-35 customers. Right. So, you know, and they and the UK and Italy, UK in particular, but also Italy have been in the programme from very, very early on. And as a, uh, you know, have been major investors in the programme and have had very, very significant work share and development share. They've made a decision now that GCAP is the next combat aircraft programme. Particularly the Italians, uh, were first up, then second were the Brits in terms of, oh, what do we do now to preserve our national uh, sovereign combat aircraft capabilities now that Eurofighter production is going to be tailing out? The Italians were never have, ha- happy to be a subcontractor uh, right on F-35. And the Japanese are looking at, okay, well, if this is a way for us to build up our capabilities while still getting capabilities from the United States, right? And building F-15s and what have you under license. So, uh, and also playing a very big role on F-35 now. Anyway, so it's 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 it, it, very interesting uh, to watch and uh, see. Uh, a very quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Uh, Richard and Sash, your guys' take on GCAP uh, and uh, what's next and what it means for F-35 ultimately uh, and and other programs. And the Swedes also are working very hard to deliver uh, to Boeing on the T-7 program, which has also been running late, which could be another factor given... Uh, you know, I mean, Saab is very efficient, but large. Uh, go ahead, uh, Richard, and then uh, Ron. I would like to get your take on that as well. Yeah, a, a few thoughts. First of all, complete agreement, Sash. You know, this looks like a really well-run program with a solid future, um, and you know, it's it's not hard to understand why. You know, harmonizing uh, Japan and UK requirements. These are two countries with uh, very similar, um, you know, missions and and well, operational parameters. For their combat aircraft and and objectives and goals and budgets and whatever else, uh, I tend to not be as uh, uh, downcast about the number of F thirty fives as as Sash that the UK will take because, you know, basically I think the last uh, Eurofighter they took was twenty twenty one. Let's be realistic; they're not going to get a Tempest or what have you until twenty thirty six, twenty thirty seven, maybe. So the idea that over sixteen years they're only going to take you know seventy planes you know, four or five, whatever it is per year. Um, that's just not a way to maintain an Air Force, right? So I, I think I tend to think it'll be at least 72, uh, possibly a bit more. Um, one big obstacle that I, sort of the elephant in the corner waiting to be dealt with, far more than where the plate, where the 
operational headquarters is for the program and whether or not Italy joins, because of course, you know, of course Italy joined, you know, I don't think there's a single pan-national program in the history of aerospace that Italy hasn't taken some kind of percentage. It's part of their industrial policy. But the big gorilla in the corner is Saudi. Uh, This is such a key linchpin of every British combat aircraft or British, uh, you know, pan-European combat aircraft involving Britain. You know, number one customer, English Electric Lightning, number one export customer for the Tornado, number one export customer for Eurofighter Typhoon. And yet the Japanese say we might not let them join. Uh, This is a major area of potential dissent. You know, that doesn't make this a terminally flawed program. I continue to believe FCAS is just just a completely ridiculous aircraft program that eventually the Germans will leave and maybe even find their way over to to attempt to GCAP. But the big question is Saudi and no, despite all the major progress with this treaty and uh, the the real estate decision and the leadership decision and whatever else, this has not been dealt with and doesn't show any signs of being dealt with at all. Uh, Ron, uh, your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a heck of a lot to add to what already sauce and, and richard said just maybe re- reiterate the point that and this is kind of where it becomes most relevant to you know the, the companies i follow um, this is still well out in the future so what does it mean for f-35 export sales probably not a heck of a lot uh and to richard's point you know ultimately i don't know how many f-35s the uk and the other partners will take but it's going to be a while till this other aircraft exists so between now and then we'll be exporting a lot of f-35s um, we are now going to go into a little bit of a uh, lightning round because we've got a lot to cover and unfortunately not a lot uh, of time in which to cover it. And a reminder to our audience, we've got one more program and next week is going to be our year in uh, review. We've got too much uh, stuff to discuss uh, today on the hard news side of things. Ron, uh, Boeing Tap Global Services Chief Stephanie Pope uh, as the company's new chief operating officer and at RTX, Chris Calio now COO is going to replace Greg Hayes. So clearly the UTX management um, is uh, going to be in charge after uh, ditching uh, the uh, legendary Raytheon name. Uh, Chris Raymond is going to replace uh, our mutual friend uh, and we wish him uh, very well and fair winds in the following seas on this assignment. We'll re- replace uh, Stephanie at Global Services. Let's start with Boeing. What do Stephanie's uh, priorities need to be? One, in the short term, execution, just like the company has been doing, uh, delivering airplanes, managing the supply chain, that sort of thing. That's one. Two, execution in the defense business uh, for all the reasons we've talked about on all the programs that are having issues in defense. And then three, and this will, you know, just assuming here that she is, you know, the next CEO, um, ultimately she's got to think about the future of the company and a new airplane and, and all that sort of stuff. But but the immediate thing uh, for you know, the chief operating officer is execution along multiple lines of business to kind of get everything back on track. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, 737 deliveries, 787 deliveries. You know, we're going to be back into uh, getting the certification on 777X done. So there's a lot to do there. And then on all the defense programs, a lot to do there to get things back on track. And then financially, start paying down the debt. Because ultimately, investors are going to want to see a dividend again and so on and so forth. And, and that's difficult to do while you still have um, a, a balance sheet that's got approximately $50 billion of, of, of debt on it. 
Um, I, I should have also said we wish everybody uh, uh, fair winds following seas uh, and great uh, success. What do uh, Chris's uh, priorities and as well, uh, both Chris's, right? Chris Callio's as well as Chris Raymond's priorities uh, need to be uh, as well as they fleet up into their new jobs. Yeah. So as, you know, as, as Chris Raymond you know, takes over the role at, at Boeing Global Services, um, you know, the good news is that is the, the, the business in Boeing's portfolio that is performing well. Um, so he's stepping into a business that, you know, obviously there's always a journey to doing things better, but today is of everything they do is doing the best. Uh, so that, you know, good for Chris. Um, uh, when, when you think about Chris um, Calio at, at RTX, he's stepping into the role at a, at a tricky time for the company. Uh, nothing, you know, existential, but for Pratt & Whitney, we've got this the issue of uh, a couple things on the GTF everything having to do with the uh, uh, the powdered metal parts that have limited life and getting all those parts switched out, uh, the, the Block D upgrades, the GTF Advantage upgrades, so a lot of stuff going on on the GTF, getting all that back on track, which is probably a multi-year thing to do. And then when you look at the Raytheon piece of RTX, the defense business, there's been some underperformance there. So uh, similar to what Stephanie's going to be doing at Boeing, Chris is going to be focusing on execution and on both both segments of the business and and i would imagine that your know, investors are going to have a really a really keen eye on that on chris it was no big surprise right I mean, he was coo and it, it was it was clear that um he was you know, you know in, in line for you know succession uh and greg hayes will still be there as an executive chairman uh, indeed. Um, uh, Sash and Richard, what do all these executives at all these companies need to be doing from your uh, standpoint, given that, um, you know, each have challenges, uh, unique challenges of their own? Sash and, and then Richard. I've got, I've got very little about what um, uh, Ron said, but just would echo. It's all about execution at this stage. Civil aerospace in general should be doing way better as an industry, then uh, you know this is an industry that is awash with orders that's had a faster than expected, really strong recovery from the COVID pandemic, and the companies either can't get the product out of the door, or the product they're shipping out of the door is defective because of, frankly, management failings. Uh, you know, in previous years where they weren't focusing on quality, they weren't focusing on process properly, um, and so. The polite term is that this is a mid-cycle growth pause, but it's actually it's a self-inflicted mid-cycle growth, growth pause for, for many companies. And sorting that out so that the industry can deliver the, you know, what should be a really impressive uh, uh, ramp up in uh, aircraft deliveries, that is the priority for every manager. And if you're an inco you know, incoming uh, management uh, at Boeing and RTX particularly. Uh, Richard, you know all the players. Well, yeah, uh, you know, first of all, obviously execution, uh, production ramp and debt buy down. But let's get into the bigger picture for a moment. Um, you know, is a company, you know, any company gaining or losing market share relative to competitors? Uh, that is the key question. And in Raytheon's case, nope, it's not. They're fine. Um, you know, they ex it's all about execution. And frankly, you know, <laughs> growing along with an incredibly buoyant missiles and munitions market too that's you know as well as you know refining a technology that they've invested in for the future and is going to start to pay dividends one day after it's out of its very difficult early years uh boeing's another story boeing is completely different 
um, they are losing market share. Uh, commercially, it's becoming a 70-30 story. It might even be 75-25 in five or 10 years' time. Uh, the response to that is to simply not worry about anything to do with new product development um, and indeed not worry about the rather difficult demographics associated with their new product development team. On top of that, they've decided to completely destroy their strategy unit. Uh, even on even on a unit level, that apparently is being stripped away, too. So uh, I guess the, what I'm trying to say just is... Just keeps getting better, right? It just, just keeps, getting, keeps better. getting better. It's just getting better. So the question becomes, well, first of all, what happens with the coming wave of downselects and GAD, FAXX, CCA, if it does not go their way and that market share erosion on the commercial side gets extended to the defense side, which is pretty much guaranteed, the right. company has to decide whether it has a future or not. <laughs> it's a big challenge. So... Chris Raymond will do a great job at BGS, uh, which is a great unit. It was hived off with the particular purpose of taking the, you know, nicely growing and highly profitable part of the entire enterprise. And, and that's terrific. But the other units really need to think about what they're going to do. And corporate needs to think, too. And it's my thesis I've said here before that maybe they're just looking at breaking the whole thing apart. Uh, absence of a strategy coupled with market share erosion. Um, so whoever's the new CEO needs to decide whether to continue that or to go down that path or whether to become a company with a future. <laughs> Just that simple. Right. Um, and, and it's funny that you and I had that conversation many years ago where it was like, why are they doing this? And that was your uh, epiphany. And at this point, I think, is is starting by some to become a consensus uh, that actually you can make a lot of money between now and then, right? A la McDonnell Douglas. Uh, and, you know, because it's, you know, what what explains the actions we're seeing, right? Airbus is still landing enormous uh, A320 series orders and yet is already looking at the next generation aircraft to replace it. Whereas Boeing continues to stick and, and say, you know, here are 10 reasons why we don't need to be doing that. So that's right. Uh, and again, right. Why? Yeah. And, the whole thing of we can get rid of the corporate strategy function works if you have unit level strategy functions. But once you're getting rid of unit level strategy functions too, exactly what sort of autopilot are you trying to put the program, put the company on? Or do you actually want to eliminate all of the people who would say, wait a minute, that's a really bad idea. We shouldn't be doing that. Oh, wait a minute. That's right. You're just trying to monetize over the next 10 years, right? That's right. And of course, you know, maybe that's the message of getting Stephanie Pope as CEO. She knows she's a respected operations person, but she's she's not the person with the engineering degree or and or program management experience the company really needs to lead it into the future. So she's there right. to not threaten what's going on now. Uh, and maybe some people like that. <laughs> well, and and you're not the only person, right? I mean, when we were all looking at our uh, feedback was was that sense without without denigrating uh, Stephanie at all and her capabilities, right? But they were saying this is an MBA. It's a financial person who's coming in. Uh, and uh, although, you know, you can equally make the case that, look, I mean, the right kind of financial person being in this position, ultimately, if they're making the right decisions for the future of the company, it, it's just the question that we all have is, what is the future of the company? What What is the management of the company want to do with Boeing that may be different than what we would like Boeing to be doing? Uh, right. They could be executing a very good strategy, which is to monetize, which doesn't mean, you know, being in the business 100 years from now. Right. They're, they won't be celebrating in uh, 2116. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, United States Air Force uh, has picked 
the five companies that are going to move ahead uh, for the collaborative combat aircraft program a very high priority. Uh, it is tied to the next generation air dominance aircraft, but also uh, not, uh, as Secretary Kendall has made clear. And we did a terrific interview with him at the Reagan Forum uh, about a week ago, where uh, he explained that he wants CCA to be controlled by everything from F-15s uh, to other aircraft forward, right? It's not purely connected uh, to NGAD, even though NGAD will have a very important integration role in this forward. The companies that moved ahead were Anduril, Boeing, uh, General Atomics, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Kratos was eliminated, which uh, surprised uh, some. Walk, walk us through, you know, what, if anything, this tells us at this early stage, even if what we do know is the Air Force is moving very aggressively on NGAD and wants to actually get this out earlier and appears inclined to, to you know, appreciate investment that companies are, are doing to mature their own technology and, and, and get to that requirement more quickly. What's your sense? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things. I mean, nobody should be surprised by General Atomics, right? Not at all. Uh, having Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop there, does that really surprise anybody? Nope. Um, having Anduril there is is interesting, right? So because it's right. a it's a newer startup company, and uh, they've been a, a big focus on not just the hardware, but the hardware integrating with the software and AI and this and that. So I mean, it, it probably makes a ton of sense to have them there. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, one broad question I have, and, and and maybe you have a good good view on this. Um, I just don't at this point. You know, where do where does the CCAs fit in with the replicator program and and so on and and so forth. So to me, it's still kind of unclear where this is all going. Um, but you know, the 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 pod of companies that they had picked doesn't is not surprising to me ultimately, and I don't think it's all that surprising to the street. Um, uh, but you know, to your point, you know, the one that might be surprising was the one that was left out on uh, replicator, which I think we're going to hear more about shortly uh, from uh, the Pentagon. I think is more on the expendable side of the equation, right? How can we make large quantities of systems through non-traditional suppliers and get them into the hands uh, of countries like Ukraine and Israel, who are sort of uh, you know really need them and also bolster our arsenals, whereas CCA is a little bit more of a you know higher end uh, system. Uh, that can perform uh, a vast array of uh, missions. Richard, uh, your your take on what all of this is, especially since Kratos was sort of seen as one of those companies that was going to be in this mix at the end of the day and, and ended up uh, not being, ultimately. Yeah, you know, we don't know what CCA looks like at the end of the day, and it could very well be that Kratos still plays some kind of role. Um, but the simplest explanation is likely the correct one, which is in the absence of faster maturing AI technology, air vehicles are getting bigger because the multiple between crude platforms and remotely controlled platforms is probably changing. In other words, rather than three or four to one, it's one or one or two to one which means bigger air vehicles and <laughs> Kratos' ability to scale. To create new bigger air vehicles is perhaps a bit more uh, uncertain relative to the, you know, the, the big three and, uh, and Andrew and, 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 and others. Um, so I think that's probably the, the correct way to look at it. You know, you, you're now looking at something with a $25 million price tag and 8,000 pound thrust engines, you know, rather than the previous vision, which was uh, considerably smaller, uh, more along the lines of kind of an overgrown cruise missile. Uh, so I think that's probably what's driving this down select. Sasha, I don't know if you want to add anything uh, to this, but you're welcome. Or do you want to talk about Kemring tanks uh, and Ukraine aid at a time when uh, the U.S. has not yet approved much needed aid? And even as the EU tried to do so, 
uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's unfortunately stooge in Europe, Viktor Orban, put the brakes on $50 billion in much needed aid going to Ukraine uh, as well. Anyway, give us your sense on all of those real quick in the last uh, five minutes or so that we have in the program. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, Ukraine aid. Um, it, it's not looking very good at the moment. Uh, the EU, well, I, 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 I was going to say the EU didn't cover itself with glory this uh, week. That's actually unfair on the EU. The EU, I think, is trying incredibly hard, but is hampered by its own structure and its own rules, which uh, require unanimity. So one holdout uh, blocks the whole thing. And in this case, that happens to be uh, Hungary. Uh, and you know, Hungary's position in this is... It's not a terribly attractive one, but I say that from a point of from a sort of rather pro-Ukraine uh, point of view. Um, the, good, uh, so, the good news is the the good news is the EU did uh, start the accession process, right? And uh, Orban yeah. left the room, and all the other members voted for it. But that's a decade-long program, isn't? Yeah, isn't it's a decade-long to... program. Uh, and, yeah. and and Orban was very very clear that he left the room on the basis couldn't see any point in vetoing it at this stage when he's got so many other opportunities to do so in the decade ahead. Um, so yeah, you know, it was uh, it, it was symbolic, and it slightly reduced the sting of the uh, vetoing of the uh, military and economic aid. But boy, only only slightly. Uh, so yeah, you know, things are things are tough for uh, Ukraine at the moment, um, and uh, you know, politically on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, there isn't a, a sufficiently durable consensus. I think that what we will start to see uh, in Europe will be um, many more bilateral. Uh, deals and funding uh, with Ukraine again, or or an acceleration, uh, uh, an upscaling of those. But the, the the EU has been incredibly important in terms of political and economic support, as opposed to military support uh, for Ukraine. So this is a this is a big shortfall, uh, and uh, one that you know may be resolved um, uh, next you know in January. But uh, fingers crossed. Um, I'm on slightly you know more positive uh, notes. There, you know, there's been a lot of accusations that uh, the defense industrial base is simply not scaling up yet for the level of levels of demand required by uh, Ukraine uh, or indeed for European countries and the US um, uh, rearming as a consequence of, of Ukraine. Um, Kemring, a, a UK quoted company, is a bit of a bellwether in this regard because it's got what historically has been a fairly small niche energetics business. It produces propellant for uh, for artillery, rocket motors, um, uh, explosive fillings, um, all of which, you know, in relatively uh, small quantities, although, frankly, that's been the case for every European munitions producer until recently. Um, but they produced numbers this week, for uh, full-year numbers, which were, and the order intake was off the off the scale. Um, the order intake for what they call their energetics business up 160% in the year. Um, they are, um, they've increased the, scale of the capex program which was already already the biggest capex program that they um that they've ever done to increase capacity in uh norway and scotland the two big uh energetics uh businesses and on, on our forecast their energetics business is going to triple in revenues over the next couple of years they're seeing demand from all of the european ammunition producers they're seeing demand from um, uh, several of the European missile and rocket producers. They're a key uh, supplier for the NLAW anti-tank anti missile program. And they're also supplying you know, the likes of Northrop Grumman in, in the US with uh, warheads. So it's very interesting to see a, a small bellwether stock like this where everything is turning up at once. And the pricing is clearly very, very favourable. Most customers, most private sector customers will pay what it takes. They are trying to do you know, three, five-year 
contract, sometimes more. Uh, it's a really, really fortunate position for, for Kemmering to be in at this stage. Um, moving on now, tanks. Um, two right. really interesting European tank announcements um, this week. Uh, first of all, Leonardo uh, has uh, an announced a joint venture with KNDS, uh, Kraus Maffei Wegman and Nexter, uh, to uh, cooperate on the Leopard, 8, uh, Leopard 2A8, which is the most updated version of Leopard 2 uh, for the Italian army. Um, and it looks like they would hope to get a, you know, a chunk of either licensed production or uh, components and so forth in, and also to collaborate uh, on a future infantry fighting vehicle. That latter, I think, will be rather difficult because KNDS doesn't have an infantry fighting vehicle at the moment, neither does right. Leonardo. And um, I'd understood that the Italian government was uh, looking at, at Ryan Mattal's um, Lynx program. But it's a, you know, it's a very interesting example of Leonardo being, I think, extremely uh, you know, forward, uh, forward-looking in terms of the sort of joint ventures it wants to do, and making sure that it's getting a, as big a slice as possible of some of the Italian uh, land systems contracts. The other big announcement we had this week was that Hungary has become the launch customer for Rheinmetall's Panther uh, tank, which is a effectively a private venture, hugely updated version of Leopard Two. Um, the advantage of Panther is that he's basically been engineered. You know, they've engineered out most of the 1970s. Uh, uh, mecha uh, mechanicals uh, and so forth, and it's got a very, very updated digital turret. But so, you know, Europe will now have two very updated tanks um, uh, competing for future uh, fu future contracts. I think there will be a num you know, quite a number of those. And uh, again, this just shows European rearmament is starting to come through now. Guys, thanks very much for that. Really appreciate it. Have a great what's left uh, of the weekend and a great week. And we'll see you back again next week for our last program of the year, which will be uh, our year in review. Uh, and thanks to all of you for spending some time with us. And a very special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors that makes us make this program uh, and our daily program possible. Uh, we are going to see you again tomorrow for our look ahead segment where we start our year in review coverage next week with Byron Callen. Uh, of Capital Alpha Partners to join us uh, for a recap of the big stories uh, of the year. Thanks very much. Have a great day, and we'll see you again tomorrow.